This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. To this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com, the official podcast of minor league baseball. I'm Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City sitting in front of a gorgeous shot of the Brooklyn Bridge. Did you take this one? I took this one, but I did Photoshop it. I was ah. playing around Photoshop. So actually, again, I, I know we're talking about my background and none of you can see it, but just imagine it at home. I'm sitting in front of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yep. And actually, what I Photoshopped behind it was a sky I took in Mexico. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, this is a pandemic activity for me that I'm, I'm learning to play with is how to take images and, and Photoshop something out of that and then replace it with something else. Um, so about a, two years ago this time, uh, one of my best friends from college got married in Mexico where she lives and, I'd, and she got married right on the Pacific Ocean. It was one of the all-time sunsets that I've ever seen in my life. And I wanted to see what it looked like against one of the all-time skylines of my life. Yeah. Uh, New York City and the walk from Brooklyn to New York. So uh, had a rainy day a couple weeks ago, tried to Photoshop it. And now that's that's going to be a part of the Zoom rotation, as is such a, is our life now. Like the Zoom rotation is something we have to think about in Zoom backgrounds. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. I mean, I'm more impressed now knowing that it was not that was not the sky Originally, I guess I could have guessed, like, I don't think New York City gets a ton of skies like that. But still, not really. No. I'm very impressed. Very impressed. Thank you. Tremendous work in your Photoshop skills. Uh, so welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show. We're coming up on a milestone. Sam, let us know as we started recording next week is episode 300 of this show. What are we doing? I don't know. I don't <laughs> want to make any promises. I was thinking about that. I was like... Should I should I say something about like what we have planned? And then I'm like, you know what? No, it's just we're gonna be back next we're week. We're gonna do a pizza party. It, yeah, it's gonna for be us. great. For only us. <laughs> just for the two of us. We'll just be chewing pizza through the podcast and it'll be a very special experience for us, but not you. Uh I don't know. We'll we'll come up with some way to to mark the occasion. I I, I have some ideas of guests we could bring along. Maybe we'll do something where we go back into the, the archives and look back at um, who we really like talking to. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how things are going to play. But we will mark the occasion in some way. That is the promise I can make from you know my podcasting mouth to your podcast listening ears. Exactly. I like that description too. Um, so let's get started on this week's episode of the show. Uh, I was a jerk and screwed up my schedule today and I missed the interview, but uh, it's going to be a good one coming up. Sam, tell us about it before we dive into everything. Yeah. So uh, I got to talk to Reno Aces General Manager, Emily Jansen. Um, she has been named to a diversity committee uh, that is being formed with between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball, um, hoping to address you know, some of the inclusion, diversity issues that exist in baseball and, and trying to you know, open up front offices and baseball in general uh, to people from all sorts of backgrounds. So we got into that and her work with that, what she expects to do as part of that committee, um, her background, how she got on it, and 
um, what they're doing in Reno. I mean, there's tons to talk about, obviously, with every team. Anybody we talked to, to from any team. So we talked about how the Aces got through 2020 and their expectations for the 2021 season coming up, which for them will start in May, but their home opener is on May 13th, which is two months away now as we look at it. Even with the AAA delay, it's still kind of cool to think we're only two months away from the Aces playing their first game at home at Greater Nevada Field. Crazy that we are uh, getting that close. And we've got so much to discuss with you on this week's episode of the show. And we are going to dive in uh, with some really kind of breaking news as of today. Now, granted, it's a podcast, so uh, you'll you'll hear it after it's really been breaking. But really, it did break just before we started recording today. Um, and I quote from a press release from Major League Baseball today. Major League Baseball announced today the testing of a variety of experimental playing rules at various levels of the minor leagues during the upcoming season. These experimental playing rules have been approved by the Competition Committee and the Playing Rules Committee. MLB will closely monitor and analyze the impact of each rule throughout the 2021 season and report to clubs on their effects for further analysis. Consistent with the preferences of our fans, the rule changes being tested are designed to increase action on the base paths, create more balls in play, improve the pace and length of games, and reduce player injuries. Here is what is coming. They will be implemented in either a single level or a single league. And this is what they look like. In AAA, the size of first, second, and third base will be increased from 15 inches square to 18 inches square. And also, apparently those bases will be made of a, a material that is expected to perform better uh, in wet conditions. The competition committee, this quoting from the press release, expects the shorter distances between bases created by increased size to have a modest impact on the success rate of stolen base attempts and the frequency with which a batter runner reaches base on ground balls and bunt attempts. Double A level. This is where the shift change comes in from the press release. Quote, the defensive team must have a minimum of four players on the infield, each of whom must have both feet completely in front of the outer boundary of the infield dirt. Depending on the preliminary results of this experimental rule change, MLB may require two infielders to be positioned entirely on each side of second base in the second half of the double-A season. These restrictions on defensive positioning are intended to increase the batting average on balls in play. So no more shift with a guy standing in short right field or short left field or whatever it is. High A, there's a new step-off rule coming. Pitchers are required to disengage the rubber prior to throwing to any base with the penalty of a balk in the event the pitcher fails to comply. Now, this is a big thing, obviously, for left-handed pitchers throwing over to first base. You can't just take the leg up, step across, and throw. Now you have to disengage from the rubber the way you would if you were a left-handed pitcher throwing to third or a right-handed pitcher throwing to first. Now, at low A, there are a few different things. Across all low A leagues, pitchers will be limited to two total step-offs or pickoffs per plate appearance while there is at least one runner on base. A pitcher may attempt a third step-off or pickoff in the same plate appearance, but if the runner successfully gets back to the base, the result is a balk. So if you pick off and you get the guy out, that's fine. But if you throw over and he gets back to first base or whatever it is, that's a balk. He gets to take second. In the low-A Southeast League, uh, in addition to those same limitations on step-offs and pickoffs, MLB will expand testing of the automatic ball strike system. So that, quote, for lack of a better term, quote-unquote, uh, robot umpires. This is something that we were anticipating in the Florida State League before the start of the 2020 season. Uh, and then, of course, that league did not happen. Uh, this is a system that will, quote, assist home plate umpires with calling balls and strikes, ensure a consistent strike zone is called, and determine the optimal strike zone for the system. In low-A West, 
in addition to all of the sip-off and pick-off stuff. Uh, this follows successful pace of play rules that were in place in the Florida State League in 2019, uh, and this is pitch clocks. On-field timers, one in the outfield, two behind home plate between the dugouts, will be implemented to enforce times uh, time limits between the delivery of pitches, inning breaks, and pitching changes. Uh, the new on-field timer in low A West will include new regulations beyond the system currently used in AAA and AA to reduce length, game length and uh, improve the pace of play. In all reality, this is not going to largely affect the way people watch games. When you show up to a ballpark, it's going to look pretty much the exact same. This is not, uh, well, the batter can steal first base now. Or if you hit a guy with a thrown ball, he's out the way that, you know, it, it would have been in the 1870s. Um, these are a lot of changes that I think are predicated on um, some really good research that the, the rules people have done on the MLB side and uh, are looking to maybe bring up to the major league level at some point. Uh, but Sam, your reaction to all this stuff as it came out today. Yeah, I think one thing, um, I don't know if you said the detail, I just want to throw it out there real quick. The pitch clock that's coming to low A West is 15 seconds, which is a little quicker than what they've been dealing with so far. So again, that's just supposed to speed it up. If you're sitting there at home wondering why is that in low A West and then the robot umpires are in low A Southeast and some rules are at double A, some rules are at high A, it's basically isolating everything because they want to measure how it's going to work, how it's going to affect balls in play, how it's going to affect stolen bases. And if you get one league that's going to have all the changes, it's tougher to say what actually sped things up or what had a better effect on balls in play. So by isolating it across multiple levels, and then in some cases, isolating it within leagues in those levels, it's easier to test this stuff. Uh, I think my first initial reaction was I'm excited by two of these things, I think, like straight up just excited. Uh, the larger bases in AAA, the idea that there are going to be potentially more stolen bases, uh, it is a little easier to steal. It is a little tougher to slide off the base uh, because it, it's a little slick or something like that. I know replay isn't a thing at AAA, but how many major league games have we watched in which it's come down to the guy just slightly raised his hand and it's out because he was off the bag. In all reality, he, he beat the throw he should have been safe, but according to the rule, he was off the bag. So the idea that it's a little stickier is, is exciting. Um, but I think of somebody like Nick Heath, who we've had on the show, led the minor leagues in stolen bases a couple of years ago. In all reality, probably going to be at AAA this year. Again, how many stolen bases can he get if he's back in AAA with slightly larger bases? How many times was he thrown out by just a couple inches? Hey, now if we're talking about three inches on both sides, both three inches at first and three inches at second, could he steal 75 plus bags at AAA? I don't know. I'm excited to find out. Um, I think that's going to be great. I'm also excited about the limits on pickoffs. Uh, the fact that it's limited to two, there's really nothing I hate more than the constant throw over. I think it slows down the game. Yeah. Incredibly. I don't think it, there's really any benefit to it whatsoever from a fans at aspect, certainly, but from a, game aspect at all. It all you can does is think like, of like one exciting time in history with the throw over. And that was Dave Roberts in the ALCS where everybody in the ballpark knew he was going no matter the throw over amounts, all that stuff. That's like the only time in history where it's like, Oh, the throw over is suspenseful. Most of the time it's like, this is dumb. Just deliver a pitch. Yeah. And not only that though, I, I feel like if you're throwing over three or four times, it's not necessarily to, to limit the runner. It's almost to like center yourself as a pitcher. Like you are afraid to, to throw the ball yeah. at that point. And it, if you just throw it over. Yeah, it becomes a crutch. Like, yeah. And the, just if, if anything, 
I, we've all talked to pitching coordinators, pitching coaches, managers who say like the guy just needs to focus and center himself and, and get into rhythm. And if anything, this is going to teach guys at, you know, the, the low A levels to really just get the ball, focus on what you need to do and pitch it and throw it and allow that uh, development of controlling the running game to maybe come at other levels. But I, I, I'm excited by that for sure. Now the shifts I think is maybe the most controversial outside of the robot umpires. And I'll get there in a second. Uh, I, I know there are some traditionalists who are like, ban the shift, the, sh the shift needs to be over with. I like this way of doing it if they are going to do it. If you're going to test it, the idea of in putting all four infielders need to be on the dirt is a good way of kind of putting your toe in the water and seeing what effect that's going to have. Now you could have three guys on the right side of the, the infield still, but you can't have, like Tyler said, a guy in short right. Um, those balls in, in which, you know, I, I grew up watching David Ortiz. David Ortiz would face so many shifts in which he would smack the ball as hard as he could to short right, and it would be caught by the second baseman. That's going to be gone now. What is there going to be a tangible effect? Is it something you're going to notice from the stands? Probably not, but we might look at uh, you know, double A stats by the end of the year and realize the BABIP is slightly higher or averages across the border slightly higher. I think that's kind of that's good. I, I will be interested to see if they put that second half rule into place and what the benchmarks are. Um, the idea of there being like, I don't think they're going to put a line in the middle of the field, but the idea of now umpires have to watch two guys being on the right side, two guys being on the left side. I think that gets a little hairy. Um, but again, the minor leagues are, are where things are tested. The DH was tested in the minor leagues. This is where a lot of these things happen. Uh, the automated ball strike system, robot umpires, as we're all going to call them, let's be honest, uh, was always going to come to the Florida State League. We were expecting that last year. I wrote a whole story about how teams were preparing for that. Uh, guys had seen it already in the Arizona Fall League. As part of that story, I talked to Royce Lewis about it. Uh, he said it was it was interesting going through that because you lose the human aspect, obviously, um, when you want to say, hey, was that on the outside corner? I thought it was outside. The guy, he can only shrug. The umpire can only say, hey, listen, in my ear, I heard that it was a strike. It is a strike. It is what it is. Um, but it also changes so many other aspects of the game. Uh, so much of what we talk about now with catching development is framing, right, is, is stealing those extra strikes. It is a skill that has to be taught. It's a skill, skill that has to be learned. And now all of a sudden, if it's just like, hey, just catch it wherever, and they're going to call it ball or strike, that's something that's getting taken away from these low-A Southeast catchers. Um, how are they going to develop as a result? Is it something they have to prepare for later? I don't know. We'll have to keep an eye on that for sure. But also just pitchers. One thing Royce Lewis said, and, and we've had guys on the podcast who have said this, if you throw the breaking stuff, particularly a spiked curveball that's just going to nick the top or the bottom of the zone, that's still a strike. The robot's going to see that as a strike. And what the batter's going to see is the ball that hit the ground. Um, so have they gotten more accurate with that since the fall league? Is that going to change how pitchers pitch? Are we going to see more breaking balls? Because, hey, listen, if I'm going to throw it, that's something that's just going to get your knees, but you can't hit it anyways. I'm going to throw that pitch a lot. So it, a lot of this is we can sit here and talk all day about the effect it's going to have. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to be writing a lot about that over the next two months. But it, a lot of these are, we're going to have to see what's going to happen once they're in play. And even then it's going to take weeks and months to really measure the effects of this on gameplay. Are games shorter? Are more balls in play falling in for hits? Are there more stolen bases? Is this more a more enjoyable product to 
begin with. If it feels weird and it feels stunted and it doesn't feel right, then maybe all this gets scrapped, who knows? But um, we're not gonna know until things get really settled. So it's something to watch when you get to the ballpark. Maybe you can notice the differences. Maybe you'll see your favorite prospect get an extra hit that he wouldn't have gotten. And, and that's certainly a good development. Um, but a lot of this is gonna have to wait until May so we can really see this stuff get off the ground. Well, this is obviously a very emotional and uh, very difficult week to look back on in the 2020 version of this week, as this was when uh, really the United States shut down and the the initial grip of the coronavirus pandemic. And um, it's something that for those of us who work in an industry that's predicated on people gathering in large numbers and being able to, you know, be uh, in confined spaces, sitting around each other and doing all those things. It's been a really difficult last year. And obviously we did not have a minor league season and not here to, you know, look back on uh, necessarily the look back on the pandemic. I guess we we're not going to categorize it as that because it's certainly something that we're still very much in the midst of. But um, Sam, now that we are one year into this, uh, what has it taught us about the minor leagues? It's such a changed landscape now from where we were at this time in 2020. Uh, but what have we learned about the minors one year now into this? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing is that I think a lot of other sports can be like, here's what we learned about resiliency and, and what we're able to do as a sport, how we're able to get through a lost season and all that. And I think there's lots to talk about with the minor leagues in terms of that, um, you know, drive up concessions and, um, you know, using the ballparks for other means, using them as restaurants, using them as drive up theaters, all that kind of stuff uh, has been really, really fun to see. But at the same time, over the last year, we've also, uh, let's be frank about it, that there have been 40 teams that are, 40 plus teams that have been cut from the minor league structure. They, they found new partner leagues or uh, wood bat leagues or anything like that. Um, so th I think there's still a lot we need to learn about minor league baseball and what it's going to be like and what it's going to feel like. Um, but just at, at the club level, I, I remember thinking last year when we knew the season was going to be canceled, there are going to be a lot of teams that are going to struggle and they, they are struggling. Like let's not, you know, um, you know, again, be frank about this, but what the, the ability, the, the fact that we are sitting here in March, 2021, there was no minor league season last year, but yet there are 120 teams raring to go uh, for a May opening day. And we are sitting here with some optimism is huge. It's amazing that we're able to do that. Uh, that teams were able to survive, that they were able to get through that uh, is, is massive. And it's certainly a credit to the minor league spirit. It's a credit to minor league ingenuity in coming up with ways to, to stay afloat in some ways and also just uh, in some ways even thrive. Like I'm sure there are some ideas that came out of the pandemic that we're going to see put into place during the season and then become minor league staples going forward. Minor league landscape is such a creative one. And that is the backbone of minor league baseball but it's a big reason why things were able to survive the last year the way they are. And the, the way we're able to look at May 4th uh, coming up as minor league opening day and get excited about it again. As Tyler said, there's still so much we need to do. We still need to be careful. I know the Rangers have announced full capacity uh, back in Arlington. If you're gonna go to a baseball game here in the next few weeks, if you're going to one in Florida or Arizona, I'll say it again, please be safe, please be careful, please, uh, 
take care of those around you. Make sure you're still wearing your mask. Make sure you're still keeping distance, even if you've been vaccinated. Uh, and I'm very grateful that you have been vaccinated, but still make sure you're taking all the steps to take care of others because we're not out of the woods of this yet. But the fact that we can see the end of the, the light at the end of the tunnel and we're almost there is huge. And so, so big for the mental state of all of us, but just for the idea of where minor league baseball can go next. And we're almost, we almost have this part of the sports history behind us is, is so big and I'm so grateful for that. And our uh, final topic for this week's opening segment, which we're not yet calling three strikes. I don't know what arbitrary moment I'm going to be like, you know what? Three strikes is back, baby. Um, <laughs> but it'll come soon. Uh, spring training. We are a couple weeks now into games. Um, some real storylines have started to shape up. Sam, what's standing out to you right now in the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League? Yeah, so a couple things. I, I may have mentioned some of these last week, so I don't want to uh, double up too much. But one that's really stood out to me so far is Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, just the ascendance of I, – I, He's one of the best prospects in baseball for a reason. We had him on the show before, uh, you know, certainly confident in himself. Certainly sounds like he had a very strong alternate site last year, hung together with major leaguers and near major leaguers, to, despite the fact that he hadn't played full season ball yet. But the fact that he's backing that up again, as of right now, he's seven for 21 this spring with two homers, one of which went 484 feet. That's crazy. Uh, the fact that he's able to put together that much power this early in his career and do, doing so at basically the highest level he's ever played. Um, so the fact that Bobby Witt Jr. can continue to do this is really, really big for him. Um, some of the other prospects that are kind of performing the way we expected them to in some ways, Andrew Vaughn continues to make a strong case to win the White Sox DH role. That's something we have to keep an eye out for is – guys who could potentially win jobs. Uh, you know, so much of this is just fun to see prospects on the field again that we kind of forget, hey, they're there to potentially win a major league job. Andrew Vaughn is definitely in that conversation at DH, the White Sox. Similarly, Taylor Trammell, who I think kind of fell off, you know, after yet another trade for him, he goes from the Padres to the Mariners. I believe he's MLB Pipeline's now number 100 prospect, but he's had a really strong spring at a time when he needs to have a strong spring. Uh, Jared Kelnick, a lot of discussion about him being the opening day left fielder for the Mariners. Uh, some injuries have put off those ideas for a little while. We'll see when he's going to return. But Jermell's making the most of his chances here. Uh, as of right now, he's four for 13. He's got a homer and three doubles. Picking up the extra base hits uh, you know, by the handful so far, that's, that's a big development for him. Uh, one other one I, I've been keeping an eye on is Mackenzie Gore. He's somebody who I thought I, you know, I didn't think he was going to win a major league job coming out of spring training. He didn't get the call last year. In fact, the Padres called on Ryan Weathers before they went to Mackenzie Gore. Uh, so you could kind of see where he was in the pecking order, but it felt like he was the number six starter for the Padres right now. Uh, he's had a couple outings so far. The stuff has sort of been there. It's just inconsistent, which is what we heard about so much from him last year at the alternate site is that he was working on mechanics. He was working on his delivery. He was working on consistency. Uh, command has been a, a, a little bit of a problem for him so far. He is throwing in the mid nineties. He is getting swings and misses. So all the pieces are still there, but if there was any hope of, Hey, maybe he'll break with a major league club. I don't think it's there yet. I think he needs to work on that stuff at what will be the alternate site and probably eventually triple uh, a ball once that starts to get going. But uh, it is nice to, to see some of these storylines come into place. And 
like I said with Vaughn and Trammell, hopefully we see some of these guys outright win major league jobs here with a couple of weeks remaining in spring training. And that'll do it for this opening segment. Uh, we got a lot coming up for you. Benjamin Hill will join us a little while later, but Sam, tee us up for the interview. Yeah, so again, this is uh, Reno Aces general manager, Emily Jansen. Uh, we get into so much about, you know, where baseball needs to head in terms of making sure that front offices are diverse in many ways uh, as she joins the committee to address just that. So this is me speaking with Reno Aces GM, Emily Jansen. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Well, we're very pleased this week on the show before the show of the Minor League Baseball Podcast to be joined by Reno Aces General Manager, Emily Jansen. Uh, Emily, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah, no, thanks so much for doing this. And a big reason why we wanted to have you on the show this week um, is that news came out on March 9th uh, that you will be part of this year's diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, committee. It's the first of its type at the AAA level. It's kind of a, a bond between Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball. Some people from MILB on it, some people from MLB on it. Um, just take us through what that committee is, is going to be like and, and how you envision your work with that committee. Yeah, um, so I'm personally passionate about supporting and elevating women and creating visibility for women who work in sports. And so being a part of this committee, I'm excited to expand and engage to support all less privileged identities. Um, I'm also thrilled that I can represent Reno on the national baseball landscape. So out of 120 minor league baseball clubs, we are one of five who get to represent on this committee. The final member, of course, being Michelle Meyership with, with MLB. Yeah, and, and what is the, the work going to be of, of this committee? Because you mentioned there, it is a pretty solid group of you who are going to be on it. Michelle Meyership, who you mentioned, Marty Cordero, Harold Craw, Chuck Greenberg, Alan uh, Benavides, and Su Susan Savage, owner of the Sacramento Rivercats. Uh, but when are you guys starting to work together? Like what, what is it going to look like? What are the next steps here? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the goal overall is to provide access opportunities for advance advancement and for employees to feel like they can grow within an organization. I mean, it's safe to say that that is the, the overlying effort of a diversity, equity and inclusion committee. And we get to shape that new landscape for 
minor league baseball, um, working in conjunction with major league baseball. So the committee is going to meet on a regular basis. Um, we're looking forward to meeting in the coming weeks to defining our initial objectives and what we hope to accomplish in year one. And as you stated, we've got some incredible talented to lead this this diverse team. Um, Susan Savage with the Sacramento River Cats as such a powerful female figure in minor league baseball um, for so many years. Uh, Marty Cordero has done so much. Harold Craw, Chuck Greenberg, Alan Benavides um, has done so much up in Eugene. So I think everybody's very energized and excited to get going. And uh, we will be getting started over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And when that first meeting does come, you said you're somebody who's, who's very passionate about um, making sure women have a place in baseball, especially in, in front offices. And I'm going to point people to a roundtable you were part of with our own Kelsey Hennigan earlier this offseason uh, that I think was really important and struck a lot of chords at, at this time. But when you were coming to that meeting for the first time, like what are you going to try to bring to the table? What's the first thing on your agenda? Yeah, I mean, this last year, elevating women who work in sports has gone beyond me Emily and my byline was the first or the, the um, first female GM in nearly 20 years, the AAA level in 2018 when I was hired. And there's been so much progress since then. We now have three female GMs at the AAA level. I have uh, expanded my voice and my footprint for women in sports. I started a podcast leadership is female where I interview executives, female executives who work in sports. And, you know, recently I talked to um, the female CEO of the New York Liberty and the WNBA. Um, I interviewed the woman who's the CEO of the College Football Hall of Fame. And that is definitely, you know, one of the first things on my list is the visibility piece. There's a lot of women doing incredible work um, in this space already. How can we help to give them a larger voice so that we can lead others forward? That is definitely priority number one. I mean, Reno, we have 10 management and executive positions. Six of those are occupied by women. We need to tell those stories. We need to make it more uh, visible uh, among the sports landscape that there, are, there is female leadership. There is diverse leadership. There's certainly not enough. Um, the, the global GDP for sports is 1%. Like, think about that. 1% of our global GDP, and we don't have a level playing field. So imagine what would happen, you know, just in the economics of sports if we continue to diversify at the top level. Yeah, and – you know, we could, there are whole college courses that could be taught on this and I, I, we don't need to go on for hours about it, but in terms of what has led us to that point where it is only 1%, like you said, it, I'm sure visibility has something to do with that. Obviously sexism has something to do with it as well, but um, you know, what do you feel like has led us to that point where we are only at 1%, but it is expanding. Um, and you know, one, 1% is, is the good number. It's that sports contributes to 1% of global GDP. Gotcha. I don't gotcha. have the current, the current statistic on what 
what percentage of those executives positions are occupied by minorities. Um, but diversity, equity, and inclusion exists for a reason. We've got to work together. Uh, we need everybody involved uh, in order to, to further these initiatives. Um, you know, there's nothing that I can really pinpoint to, to why it is the way it is. Um, it, it's just those opportunities, I think, earlier on were afforded to a specific type of individual, um, you know, long ago. And once a ball gets rolling, you know, that forward momentum continues. So I think what we're asking now is how can we change that momentum? How can we, you know, split up that momentum and be more inclusive of others who can help us elevate our sport, elevate our industry and lend diverse voices so that, you know, at the end of the day, like sports are our rally cry. They are providing fun, entertaining memories for our communities all around the country. If we are more inclusive in the voices that put on those events, orchestrate those leagues, it's only going to lead to more sustainable businesses for all of us. Mm. Yeah. And, and speaking of, you know, visibility, we're coming off an off season here in which, you know, the first female general general manager uh, has ever been hired by the Miami Marlins. Um, I know Kim Ang's job is slightly different from yours, but in terms of that hire and girls all around the world and all around the country and all that, what does that do? What do you think like that one hire will do to, to kind of raise all boats in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion? Yeah, first off, you know, hats off to Kim Ang. She finally got her turn. Um, she, her name has been floating around in circles for years that she'd be the first female GM, and I just could not be more excited that that came through. And really, her message, she said it on International Women's Day on Monday, if I can do it, you can do it. And it comes down to that visibility piece. Like, I have two sons they won't know a major league baseball without a female general manager. It doesn't matter, you know, boy or girl, girls, girls won't know. Young women won't know a major league baseball without a female GM. The, the, the impact of that visibility cannot be measured in the here and now it's, it's in the long, it's in the long run where we're going to see that benefit. And um, I can't, I just can't wait to see, what she does and, and what the next girl up uh, can contribute as well. Hmm. And one thing I want to bring up again, pointing back to, to that round table you were part of this off season, one quote that stood out to me and that was featured in a piece about it um, was what it was like when you were hired. And initially you didn't think, you know, gender was going to be in every headline about your job and it, and it may have felt a little awkward, but then here's the quote I want to share is, one woman after another or one girl after another would come up to me and say things like, I didn't know I could do that until I saw you. And so once I had shifted perspective on what others may view that position as or what should have, it should have been is when my mind really started to shift along the spectrum. Um, you know, how long did it, did it feel like you started to see the impact of your specific hire? Yeah, so um, I'm so happy you brought that up because initially I thought, okay, this is a, this is a great headline. I can I, but I couldn't fully grasp its importance. I thought to myself, I got hired because of what I can do, you know, not to represent a headline. And seven months later, 
I was at baseball winter meetings in Las Vegas and I got the chance to be on a panel at the women in baseball event and speak to a few hundred women in the room. And as you stated that I stated, you know, one woman after another came up to me and said, I, I didn't know this was possible until I saw you. And for me, that's when it really clicked. It took me, you know, more than half a year to understand what this role meant for others. It wasn't about me at that point. It was about the visibility and the position for other women who might want to pursue this career. And then also for the other men in the room. You know, I was, it was new for, for a AAA team to come into Reno and be greeted by Emily Jansen, the female GM of the Aces, uh, you know, down in their, in their clubhouse space. But you know what? One greeting after another, one conversation after another, the, my presence starts to normalize. And the minute my presence starts to normalize, that's when the eyes and the mind begins to open that this doesn't have to be a role that's filled by, by a man. Uh, a woman can do this job too. And so I only hope to continue to do great work uh, so that I can continue to lead her forward and, and create opportunities uh, for more women to hold roles traditionally held by men in the future. Gotcha. And uh, as kind of part of that, and you mentioned before that number of there are 10 executive roles with the ACEs, six of them are, are being filled by women. Um, we've kind of come up in a time this off season in terms of there being stories about you know, sexual harassment claims and, and just no women being around to be in those conversations about what, you know, as, as Mickey Calloway, for example, um, you know, nobody's been there to, to ask women about, you know, what their experiences were with him. What do you feel like just having more women in these positions, what kind of effect that has for, for things like that and how baseball needs to carry itself forward from a culture standpoint? Yeah. You know, I hope that, there is a, a comfort in speaking up. It's really, really challenging to raise those issues um, when they happen. But I think that the climate is, is shifting and the support is available. Um, it doesn't make it any easier for that woman to stand up and say, hey, something happened to me. That's not right. Um, but I would hope that, that women know that they are, are supported um, by many, many male colleagues and female colleagues alike. And that telling that story is important because it has to get oxygen so that it can, it can live and that we can make meaningful change. So as challenging as it is to stand up and, and talk about a negative interaction or something that happened to you, it's hard for us to move forward if we, if we don't know our history or if we don't know what's happened um, to a specific individual. So for those women who speak up and say something, oh my goodness, I just, I have the most respect, admiration um, for, for that courage that it takes to, to uh, share your story. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope, you know, that we're, we're changing it, not only as a sport in the way we listen to those stories, but as a culture at large um, as well. Well, now let, let's get into a few specific questions about the ACEs specifically. Um, we've had a, a couple people from front offices on the show recently, and a lot of 
what's happening is looking forward to the 2021 season, but I want to look back here real quick because this is the kind of week of anniversaries in terms of everything being put on hold and everything being shut down. So what was the last year like, literally like the last 52 weeks like uh, for the Reno Aces, and how did you guys get through 2020 slash the early couple months of 2021? Yeah, it has been, um, it's hard to find the adjectives really to describe what the year, the last year has been like. Um, we've, we've used all the catchphrases, you know, pivoted, shifted, communicated. Um, I, we've, we've done it all. Um, we've come out on the other side of this thing, I, I hope. Um, stronger. Um, we're a bit leaner. There's definitely been some loss uh, along the way in terms of, of staff that um, we couldn't keep on board, um, you know, through this, through this period of time, which has been really challenging as a leader to make those difficult decisions, um, but ultimately to make sure that you're creating a sustain, sustainable business moving forward. Um, we've reevaluated partnerships, um, we've done improvements on our stadium. We've created new systems um, to better operate in the future, both internally and externally. Um, boy, I mean, we have not rested on our laurels. We've put in full days, full weeks work uh, since since day one um, that we were sent home um, from from the office, and then several months later, after the season was canceled, the next the next uh, thought after a big blow of, of bad news was, okay, now what, you know, what's, what's next. And I'm really proud of the work that the ACEs have done as, as a leadership team to recenter, uh, stay focused and ultimately to be ready, um, be ready when that time comes. And now we're so looking forward to May 13th. Um, where we will get to open the gates at Greater Nevada Field and welcome fans back to our stadium. And, uh, man, I also can't wait to see the players. I just can't wait to see the guys <laughs> in their Aces uniforms uh, take the field and, um, you know, per- continue to pursue their dreams of making it to the big leagues and, and hearing our fans cheer them on. Yeah, and, and speaking of those players, that kind of ties into my next question. Obviously, a, a big story of – the offseason was the, the new minor league structure and the signing of PDLs. Um, based on stuff I've read about the Aces, it, you guys were never really worried about your partnership with the D-backs and, and for good reason. Um, but what was it like going through that process as, as a team that, you know, it seemed pretty well established and it, sent, it seemed like you guys were ready to sign pretty quickly, but, it, uh, you know, things just needed to be announced and official, um, you know, come just a few weeks ago, really. Yeah, I mean, um, it was a, a definitely a roller coaster of emotion, but one of those emotions was trust. We had to trust that Major League Baseball had the best interest of our clubs to maintain a incredible business model moving forward. Um, we trusted that Major League Baseball had their eye out for the players and their health and safety and their development and would help us move forward successfully in this new term. So we, uh, we rode that roller coaster and um, I'm so happy to have come out on the other side. And, you know, I just can't say enough great things about the Arizona Diamondbacks. They've been great partners with us since we landed in Reno in 2009. And we have just worked so well with them. We've got great communication 
And, um, you know, also big shout out to, to our owners, uh, Herb Simon and the Simon family who just continue to reinvest to make sure that our facility is one of the best in AAA, um, both for our players and for our fans. So, you know, those, those things certainly contributed to our confidence that we'd be included at the AAA level um, and continue our great partnership moving forward with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Hmm. And speaking of the stadium itself at Greater Nevada Field, um, are there any changes that you guys have had to do or any um, renovations? I know you mentioned before that was part of the things that you guys were working on in 2020 um, as you know, baseball was put on hold. But uh, is there anything maybe fans can look forward to about being different or, or new when, when they are able to go back to the park? Yeah, definitely. So before the 2020 season was to start, we had upgraded all of our lighting to LED. And while that may sound maybe boring at first blush, um, the new LED lights are incredible. Their capabilities to put on a show, um, to flash, to celebrate home runs, to illuminate the ballpark. So we can't wait for people to see those live and in person. We also extended our netting foul pole to foul pole. So Fan safety is, is obviously really important to us. And, um, and then being able to relax when you're at a ball game. Um, so we, we see, you know, an incredible velocity of the baseball coming off the bat and um, an amazing amount of home runs. And uh, we just wanted to make sure that, that our fans in the stands are protected and can enjoy the game um, and, and relax. And then finally, we are completing a field renovation. So, yes, that is for, for the players to have the best playing surface. I mean, we've got a big league playing surface here in our minor league park in Reno. But it's also, you're going to notice a difference um, from, from a fan perspective as well. Uh, the game is going to run smoother. Um, and, you know, if you get that chance to put your feet on the field, um, you're, you'll certainly feel it too. So, Lots of improvements um, to the stadium, and uh, we, we just can't wait to show it off. Yeah, and speaking of which, you mentioned May 13th is going to be opening day for you guys. Uh, as things are lining up right now, is there a percentage that you expect to be at capacity uh, for that May 13th opener? You know, it's too early to, uh, to talk about that number because the landscape is changing so quickly with the vaccine rollout, I saw, um, you know, this week, I think we all saw the article um, about Major League ballparks and their projected um, fan attendance. We will be ready to release that sometime soon, but I can tell everybody that we have been working so fastidiously with both the state and the county on our reopening plans and making sure that the health and safety of our fans and players is, is first and foremost. Um, that we're, we're following all the rules and that you can feel comfortable enjoying a game at the ballpark in outdoor nine acre facility. <laughs> and I think that's something that we, you know, we don't want to shortchange ourselves. Like we are baseball is an outdoor game. So um, we, we certainly have that to our advantage and Northern Nevada has some of the best weather in the country during the summer and um, we just can't wait to take advantage of it with, with the maximum amount of people, you know, that we'll be allowed to have. Yeah. And speaking of which, I mean, you guys are in a two triple a state, you got Vegas uh, to the South. And I know you guys are probably a little bit more of rivals than normal, but with something like this, like, do you guys 
work in tandem talking to the government? Do you work separately? Like, how does that work when you are both you know, formerly PCL clubs, AAA clubs, um, you know, both trying to accomplish a goal and, and get people back to the stadium safely? What is that communication like between you guys and the aviators? Yeah, we've certainly leaned on all of the professional sports teams in in our state to talk about um, best practices and protocols, and then all of those teams have comrades in sport around the country. So that's one of the coolest things about just the sports industry in general is our service to our fans and our communities like doesn't stop at the borders of our cities. Um, we want to help the other teams um, get to the finish line as well. So the amount of idea sharing and webinars that were available for sports executives to attend in the last year to make sure that we knew exactly what to do when we had the chance to welcome fans um, was, was incredible. And, you know, more specifically to, to Las Vegas, there is a lot of local county uh, guidelines so, you know, we've really been leaning into um, working with our county officials and them uh, doing the same down south. But, uh, but yeah, I would just say the industry as a whole has, it's been, it's been an honor, you know, in this last year to, to be a part of something that works so hard and that is so open um, to, to sharing and elevating each other. All right, Emily, we'll, we'll end on this one. Um, it's so nice to ask this question. I got to say before before I ask it, but so much of what we used to ask in 2020 was, "What is your favorite minor league moment?" Like, let's look back. Now we're actually getting to look forward. So we'll we'll end on this one. What are you looking forward to most about that May 13th date? Like, what specific moment will you feel like, man, baseball is back here in Reno? Oh, that's such a good question and such an easy answer, and it is. <laughs> Literally the moment that we unlock and push open those big green gates to the fans waiting outside on our plaza. That is the moment I can almost feel it. I can hear the music. I can see the crowd. I can hear the clicking of the lock. That is the moment. I just cannot wait. All right. Well, that, that brings up a follow-up then. Uh, let's say, you know, the, the stadium DJ, you're the GM. They say, hey, you get to be DJ here for the first song. What song are you playing first? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. Um, I'll probably let let our fans or our staff vote on that. But <laughs> I'm such a traditionalist. Um, that take me out to the ball game. I, I mean, that just that's what we're doing. We're welcoming back baseball. We're saying, take me out to the ball game. We're saying, come to our stadium. And so I, I, I'm, for, I'm a Chicago girl. So I think about, you know, my time um, at Wrigley as a kid and, you know, hearing the organ, like, man, if we just had that little, little throwback, um, you know, to open the gates and, uh, and then we've got some great, great tunes to follow it up. But, but certainly take me out to the ball game, I think takes the cake. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do feel like that is the answer, easy answer, but also there's no time when taking me out to the ball game has meant more as just a phrase than mm-hmm. it will this summer for sure. Well, Emily Jansen, 100%. general manager of the Reno Aces, thank you so much for taking time and joining us this week. All the best over there in Reno, and we're really looking forward to that May 13th date and everything else that comes after it this summer with the Aces. Me too. Thanks for having me.
It's only been a few weeks, but it feels as though we have been wandering in the Ben Hill-less abyss for, I don't know, decades. And we welcome our fearless friend and new father back to the show for the first time in his fatherhood. I know they talk about the benchmarks of parenthood and all that. And I would imagine your very first episode of the show before the show after uh, having a child is probably among the biggest so far. Hi, Ben. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Sam. It's, it's great to talk to you guys. And uh, yeah, this is probably the biggest benchmark uh, so far of fatherhood. You know, um, I've been noticing a lot of that kind of stuff of like, what what are the first records I'm playing for my son, Harry, Harry James Hill. He was born on February 24th. What are the first records? What TV shows is he, are, is he absorbing? All these dumb little things, but uh, nothing is more important than uh, what did we talk about during the first podcast in which he was alive? I'm sure he will be... Um, asking me down the line and he'll need a good answer from me yeah and i do not want my this episode to be subpar and uh have it something that he holds against me down the line i'm trying my best to uh keep him from having as little ammunition as possible when he gets older to throw back at me although i'm sure there'll be some but um you know right now he's just hanging out a lot of time sleeping eating screaming that's basically it pretty much all i do so, yeah, <laughs> you know, the last last uh, few years has been a lot of the screaming. Um, someday he's gonna be like, "What happened with those guys that you that you did the the podcast with?" And you'll be like, "Oh, you know Sam. We still see Sam. He's a you know a star." And the other guy, he bought like a 1970s SUV, and nobody ever heard from him again. So it'll be uh, <laughs> it'll be great. Um, tell us, he's so this is 20. He's like 15 days old, 16 days old. What? Yes, he turned uh, two weeks. You know, when they're when uh, yeah. kids or babies are so young, you're like commemorating week birthdays, so to speak. So two weeks awesome. was uh, yesterday. Today is uh, day fifteen, and uh, yeah, he's growing. I'm learning a lot. I didn't know that babies lost weight from the time they were born. I, I have heard that. Benchmark. I thought that was the benchmark that they start, and it's all uphill from there. But I guess because they just lived in this like underwater lair for so long, a lot of it is just like water they spit up. And then they got to get the weight back. So he's got another pediatrician appointment tomorrow. And hopefully he'll be pretty close back to his birth weight of seven pounds, uh, four ounces. That's uh, that's the goal. So rooting for him on that front. And uh, yeah, he's looking good. He's looking good. So what is he uh, I being a, a person with no kids of my own? What is the the inter- is he can he like grab on your finger yet? Is he like opening his eyes, looking around, kind of checking stuff out? What's yeah, yeah. Whole- I mean, babies. Um, you know, I read this in one of the parenting books. This is a said, father podcast. This is a fatherhood podcast yeah. now, by the way. Yes, for everyone. Yes. Um, I read this in a parenting book, and um, they said don't try it, which is good advice not to try this. But they said <laughs> a baby's grip is so strong that it, like, at least theoretically could like hold itself up, you know, its own weight, just like with its, with its hands. Like, so theoretically I could have like my son grasp each of my fingers and just like hold him and he could hold himself up. Wow. Like some monkey bars. Um, you know, that's not recommended. I'm not going to try <laughs> it, but yeah, he's got a really strong grip. Um, you know, I don't think, emo- I mean, yes, he has emotions. He gets like really mad when he's uncomfortable and everything. But like he cycles through emotions, like he'll cycle through like every emotion in like six seconds. Like he'll like have the biggest smile, then this look of just total confusion. Then he'll crunch his face up into like a about to cry. Then he'll open his eyes eyes wide, just like in sort of like you know curiosity. And then he'll go start crying. But he cycles through them all so quickly that I'm like, dude, these emotions don't really apply to actually how you're feeling and how are you feeling? I can't even tell. 
or maybe that sounds like what i'm gonna be like after the vaccine it's just cycling through all my emotions yeah it's just a roller coaster so it's tough to tell them you know that's a my i was thinking about this the other day a milestone they don't really tell you about you know or you think about is you know there's always uh you know first words and first steps but what i'm really looking forward to is the first time i can say he thought something was funny like baby's first like humorous moment that's what i'm really looking forward to like what is the literally the first thing that you could really say he reacted to that stimulus and thought it was funny that is like that's a pretty great. That i'm really looking forward to uh to because humor is great and you know he doesn't have a great sense of humor right now i'm like dude <laughs> take a joke but uh he's not really about that. <laughs> You gotta pace yourself in all these emotions, Harry. It's a you got a lifetime to process all those things. You can't go through like all of them in a five second span. It's gonna you're gonna wear yourself. Yeah, man. Like keep some in reserve. But yeah, he's learning. He's learning. Well, it's so good to have you back, man. And it's good to see you. And I'm glad uh, things are going well so far. And it is uh, time to talk a little baseball. We are less than two months away from the start of the minor league season, something we have missed for so long, the two of us, uh, the three of us in total, but uh, the two of us, me and Sam, reading your stuff, it's something that we've missed in the context of like, oh man, we're going to have baseball real soon. Uh, There's a great story that you've got. It's actually on MLB.com right now about uh, the Charlotte Knights mascot, Homer, who is a dragon. And when you think of dragons, you think, oh, they start fires. They breathe fire. There's fires coming out of dragons all the time. This is a dragon who in Charlotte helped put out a fire. What, what happened here in Charlotte with the, the Knights mascot Homer? Yeah. You know, today I started work and, uh, you know, I'm just getting my feet underneath me from coming back from being a dad. And obviously it's a time of transition, you know, in the world of minor league baseball, major league baseball, you know, some of the ways we're doing our job and, um, and I did not think to myself, oh, I'm going to write a story that's on the MLB homepage today. But here we are. Um, I got a DM early in the day from the Charlotte Knights, uh, Tommy, one of the guys I know there. He's like, hey, in case you haven't seen this, uh, our mascot, Homer, he put out a fire. And he sent along a picture. And it's this dragon holding a hose and like literally extinguishing a fire. And I was like, oh, OK, OK, I got to get back on the uh, back on the Ben's biz beat here. And, and what what better time than now? And so I was like, yeah, let's talk about this. So I talked to uh, Tommy, uh, Tommy Viola, another guy, Nick Farmer, who is the team's entertainment coordinator, uh, you know, close personal friend of Homer the Dragon mascot. And, um, you know, what happened is they were shooting a video in the team store, you know, modeling some merch that's available for sale this season. Homer was one of the models. Uh, things were wrapping up down there. And the team store manager looks out the window and he's like, yo, there's a huge fire or not a huge fire, but there's a fire outside. And there's a park, you know, uh, Truist Field or Truist Park, right where the Knights play. It's in downtown Charlotte. There's a public park across the street. They look out the window from the team store and there's a flower bed in this public park and it's on fire. And it's a small, there's a fire in the flower bed. And uh, there's just a lone good Samaritan trying to put it out with a a fire extinguisher he he had in his car. And he ran out of uh, juice in the fire extinguisher. So... Homer is given a fire extinguisher that the Knights had in their team store, and he runs outside and is a one-man crew fighting against uh, this flower bed blaze, flower bed blaze. And uh, the actual firefighters showed up, and uh, you know the story was that they just like had a huge smile on their face because you know they need to put out this fire, but it wasn't something threatening to engulf the neighborhood or anything. And imagine if you're a firefighter and you show up to a call. And there's a dragon <laughs> on the scene putting the fire out, and and of course the irony or the um, you know coincidence or whatever you want to put it, 
um, of, of the fact that, you know, a dragon breathes fire. So you would think a dragon would create fires, but here was this dragon putting out a fire, almost the antithesis of his nature, but he knows when to deploy fire and when to extinguish it, I learned, you know, and he does so in moral terms, um, which is a really good thing to know about uh, Homer the dragon's decision-making abilities. So I wrote a story about this uh, just can't plan for it, quintessentially minor league story. It's up on MLB.com right now. And since the Knights are a AAA affiliate of the Chicago White Sox, I believe it's on uh, you know, ChicagoWhiteSox.com, WhiteSox.com. And uh, happy to give some love to Homer and um, how he collaborated with the men of uh, Engine 4, Station 4, the Charlotte Fire Department, and uh, put out a blaze and uh, a real act of heroism from a dragon. I do want to point out real quickly that there is one mascot in minor league baseball dedicated to fighting fires, the Peoria Chiefs mascot, and his name is Homer. He's a Dalmatian uh, who is also a firefighter. So how about an aphorism synergy? <laughs> that is good. So <laughs> well, see, my question was going to be, now I know you said that Homer was like in the team store. He was with other people that are witnesses, but was he a suspect? I'm just saying, like you show up and there's a fire and there's a dragon. Yeah, I know. You think? I think his whereabouts were accounted for in the team store at the time the blaze uh, began. But you would think a dragon would be a primary suspect of a fire that breaks out nearby. Um, that's a really good question. I did ask uh, if there was a known origin of the fire, and there was not anything cut and dry in terms of how this started. So, hey, everyone's a suspect until proven otherwise. Um, you know, more likely it was a careless passerby with a cigarette butt or something of that nature, but it really could have been Homer the Dragon starting a fire as a means to then be a hero and right. put it out. I believe there are case studies about people like that, uh, or even there's stories of firefighters who have been arsonists who then went to the scene of their own crimes. Um, this could get deep. We'll have a whole I separate think... podcast. Maybe, uh, this is going to be our... The dirty our first entry into like serial. This will be yeah, <laughs> yeah. One story told week by week. Did Homer the dragon start the fire that he later himself put out? Well, I have a weird story similar to that. Not to go off too much on a tangent, we'll we'll go on to the next topic shortly. But like <laughs> my church back home in, in Palmer, Mass, was Second Congregational Church, and I believe the story is somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to be spreading rumors, but I'm pretty sure this is it. It's Second Congregational Church because the first church was burned down and it was an arsonist who worked in the fire department. Uh -oh. One of those stories. How deep yeah. do these all go? I know, yeah. So it, it's not out, out of the realm of question, um, but I'm yeah. sure Homer had his best intentions. We're not accusing Homer of anything. Just to Homer. cover not ourselves anything. legally, we have a team of lawyers, presumably for this podcast. Um, just ask me questions. Like, uh, we'll know, just like, ask any story, like any story involving dragons, there are layers. <laughs> pretty good pretty good go. uh, Ben's back baby <laughs> <laughs> well we can get Sarah Koenig on the phone and see if she can uh, see if she can fire up some serial investigative work um, Ben this uh, this time of year is so different this season obviously um, less than two months away now from minor league opening day uh, in the, the beginning of May you are in a, a much different circumstance than you've been in your career to this point, um, having entered into the realm of fatherhood. Uh, but as of right now, we are starting to see signs of life in minor league front offices that we have not seen in a while, whether it's promotion schedules being announced or new hires. You know, you, we see a tweet or an Instagram post for, okay, we're hiring our broadcast assistant. We're hiring interns on the, on the promotions crew. We're doing this. We're doing that. When you 
talk to people around the industry, which obviously you haven't been doing a ton of for the last couple of weeks because you've been attending to a tiny little human being. But um, what's the feeling that you get from everybody right now where it's, okay, we're going to do this in two months for the first time in a couple of years? Yeah. I mean, I think just like no matter where you are in life right now, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, I think there's this that kind of dual feeling of trepidation, that feeling of like, whoa, you know, what do I do with this job? How do I do it? You know, it's yeah. easy to feel uh, that anxiety uh, going in. And I'm sure there's a lot of that feeling of like, whoa, we're really going to do this. I forget what it's like. But I think like a lot of things, once it gets going, you know, it becomes second nature again. Obviously, a lot of excitement because it's been such a long build up to seeing baseball. Um, obviously, a lot of uh, concern just regarding the specifics of, uh, you know, ballpark capacities and, and all that, because, you know, at a certain point, uh, with ballpark capacity, you know, it depends on the team and facility and various operating costs, and you can't make a direct equation for every ballpark because there's a lot of factors at play. But at a certain point, it's more money to have a game with, you know, and it's it's easier to lose money by having a game with a very small crowd than it is, you know, that's a, more of a loss of money than it is just to not to play at all. So obviously, uh, that those specifics and vary by team were really just like everyone's hoping the, the vaccination continues to increase and we'll be seeing as close to full crowds as possible. But, you know, after taking such a huge economic hit, you know, throughout the entirety of 2020, last thing you want to do is finally say, Hey, we're back. And then yeah. barely be breaking even if that on, you know, a 20% ballpark capacity or whatever the case may be. Um, but, you know, fingers crossed and uh, you know, haven't seen too many like direct promo schedules yet. Um, I think those will be interesting because teams aren't going to want to do big promotions with limited capacities. Um, I think there'll be a lot of holdovers or I know there'll be a lot of holdovers from 2020 in a lot of cases. Um, I don't think too many fresh ones new for 2021, just with the the cost and the turnaround time for some of that. Um, but I'm really looking forward to that. And my hope is, and even pers on a personal level in terms of maybe being able to go on a road trip or two in the late summer, um, you know, that we'll get somewhere close to normal and we'll see, you know, maybe in August and September, the season will go later into September than usual. Um, you know, we'll get as close to normal as we can and see some really crazy, funny theme nights and see really big crowds. And uh, it's going to be a case by case basis. But uh, that light at the end of the tunnel is here. And, um, you know, to sum up this rambling answer, answer, I do think it's optimism. I mean, everyone's been through so much in this industry, just like the country at large. Uh, but if you made it this far, it's hard not to feel a little optimism because certainly, knock on wood, what's coming can't be worse than what has already you know, come before. And Ben, just before we let you go here, I know you do have a, a series on MILB.com right now um, about meeting the new teams. There are some new teams that are coming to the minor league landscape right now. You're doing one that's or you've done one on St. Paul, and we, and we talked to somebody on this podcast from St. Paul a couple of weeks ago, but what have you learned as you put together this series? Yeah, I mean, it's a three-part series and uh, involving the three formerly independent teams uh, that are now in the affiliated landscape, the St. Paul Saints, the Somerset Patriots, and the Sugarland Skeeters. You know, all of them played in the Indy Leagues, and now they're all affiliated teams. The St. Paul Saints are now the AAA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. The Somerset Patriots are the AA affiliate of the New York Yankees. The Sugarland Skeeters are the AAA affiliate of the Houston Astros. So those are the three new teams of the now 120-team minor league landscape uh, that are entering, having existed in a pre in an independent form beforehand. So I've done a three-part article series. Uh, just basically a get to know these teams focusing on the more operational fan experience side. So you can read on MILB.com uh, or MILB.com slash Ben's Viz 
uh, the St. Paul Saints and Somerset Patriots stories. Those were interesting because they were sort of inadvertently a contrast in a lot of ways. St. Paul Saints, these uh, longtime renegades, always pushing the envelope. Uh, and so they're trying to keep that renegade spirit, even as an affiliated team, you know, all sorts of crazy endeavors. And then Somerset Patriots, um, you know, Yankees market, and they kind of go, they name the Patriots, you know, they, they kind of go for a more, uh, you know, minor league version of the Yankees with a more conservative approach. And it was just kind of funny writing those articles back to back. And, you know, these are both encompassed under the minor league baseball umbrella, but obviously you're going to see major operating uh, differences between the St. Paul Saints and the Somerset Patriots. And I think the Sugarland Skeeters, that article will now be appearing uh, early next week, are probably somewhere in between those two uh, extremes uh, on the minor league operating spectrum. And uh, so I'm just happy to share that, give people a chance to kind of get to know these new teams on the affiliated landscape. They're not playing in new ballparks that just open, but they are new ballparks and new teams on the 2021 minor league baseball landscape. Uh, you know, a new context to visit, to work it into other road trips, to follow them if you're a fan of their major league affiliate, et cetera. And I think there's a lot of fun things to learn, you know, about these teams. And, you know, I could just name off any number of crazy facts about all the teams. I guess I'll leave you with one. The St. Paul Saints, one of their most beloved ballpark characters is a woman named Sister Roz, who's now like well in her 80s or even close to 90. And since the team's inception almost 30 years ago, she has she's a she's a nun and she's also a licensed masseuse and she comes to every game and gives massages at the ballpark at St. Paul Saints games sister Roz they have a literal massaging nun at the ballpark who is as beloved and long lasting a character as as any in minor league baseball and uh, those are the sort of things when I think man I got to get back on the road you know I need to meet sister Roz I need to do a story on her and the kind of thing that gives me hope for the future like those stories are still going to be out there and Let's go. Let's go get them. Talk about only in minor league baseball. Those are the things that we love and uh, and have missed and adore so much and cannot wait to get back to. And uh, the guy who writes it all the best is Benjamin Hill. You can find at Ben's Biz uh, on Twitter. You can find him at MILB.com slash Ben's Biz. You can find him on MLB.com as well. Read that Homer story. Give us your theories. Again, not suggesting, not accusing anything, just saying a little suspicious for a dragon to be in proximity to a fire and not be considered a suspect. So, uh, Ben, thanks for the time, man. Good to, good to talk to you. Give Harry a little hug for us. Will do. I will give him a hug from the podcasters, and uh, that'll be his first uh, his first hug from a podcaster, and I'm sure he'll remember it for the rest of his life. <laughs> thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. Wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show, uh, we don't really have anything to get to, so goodbye. No, I'm kidding. Uh, next week, episode 300, we're going to have some fun. And uh, I'm supposed to get obliterated by snow this weekend. Uh, like some forecasts say between two and three feet. Ooh. Others say like six to 16 inches, which like that's a far cry from two to three feet. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, man. Well, I, I try to think of, well, I guess just tweet us, you know, what you guys want as part of yeah, uh, episode 300 or what was your favorite episode of 299 you know what we didn't discuss tyler what is this in me tim dillard retired oh we didn't discuss that we went through a whole discussion podcast of minor league baseball and i think he was guest he was on episode like 211 okay something like that uh you can go back in your podcatcher just search tim that was a rare just me interview we have a lot of sam interviews but that was a rare just me interview and i would i i don't think i've ever been more sad to miss out on an interview that was a great it was a fun um i 
I, you know, I tweeted out some Tim Dillard stuff when he retired. He, if anybody doesn't know, Tim Dillard, somebody who's been around the minor leagues for a very long time, uh, pitched at Nashville, I feel like, for the last 10 years, whether they were a Rangers affiliate or a Brewers Yeah, or a Brewers affiliate. And he lives yeah. there. Yeah. So, But uh, kind of a little bit of a funky delivery, was a reliever for a while, then just needed to be somebody who could eat up innings at AAA, uh, extended his career that way, but really made – a name for himself as an internet personality, somebody who really took you into the clubhouse, made some funny videos, uh, showed you that side of baseball. A lot of baseball, when you're not working out and when you're not playing the game, can be just sitting around. And uh, Tim made the most of it, a lot of lip sync stuff, all that kind of uh, really fun stuff. Go through his Twitter, you can find it there. But just made the game fun, made it a lot of fun to follow. Great interview, great guy to to talk to anytime you got the chance to talk to him. Uh, hopefully, I'm hoping, he said he's going to announce his, his next career. Uh, actually, him and I have been talking back and forth. He said that announcement's going to come in a little while. So it seems like something is set up for him, which is great. I really hope he goes into the broadcast space or in communication in some way uh, because he deserves a, a, a big platform just to share his love of the game and, and bring his knowledge of the game and, and what he's seen from the minor leagues uh, to a bigger audience. But all the best to Tim Dillard in, in his retirement coming up. Seconded there. Very excited to see what is next for Tim Dillard, one of the uh, the best and, and funnest guys uh, in all of sports. And um, that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you for episode 300 next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.